Well, it's good to see you all this morning. I don't normally come to this service, and as you know, if you don't go to a particular service, you sometimes don't get to know people. And when you're retired, you typically don't want to go to the 8 o'clock, or at least I don't. But um, I love the book of James. Um, I suppose part of the reason why I love it is because I like the author's name. (laughs) But more seriously, I like it because the book is very practical. It's very direct. And I think I like it because it's controversial. In the 16th century, Martin Luther was fighting a battle against some of the excesses of the church. At that time, the church was saying, well, you can kind of get into heaven if you just do enough good things. And Luther was saying, no, it depends upon faith and faith alone. So when he looked at the book of James and saw all the emphasis there on works and doing good things, Luther concluded that the book of James didn't even belong in the Bible. So it's a controversial book, but I kind of like it for that reason. Now, we've made a great start so far in the last few weeks. We haven't gotten very far. We're still in the first chapter. But what we're seeing is that James is focusing attention on how it is that we face hardships and deal with difficulties in our lives. And let's face it, all of us do that. All of us face challenges and hardships, and our faith is there to help us to deal with this. Now, our passage this morning is really only six verses in the first chapter, verses 12 through 18. So I would like to have you join me in reading those verses together this morning. Let's read. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift And every perfect gift comes coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. As I've read this passage over in the past couple of weeks and reflected on it, the lesson that jumped out to me was that each one of us tends to be a shifter. We all tend to shift things. Now, some of us do it with regard to our work, and it's not always bad. For example, I don't do my own gardening. I shift that to someone else. I don't uh, clean my own house. I shift that to someone else. I do make my bed, by the way. Um, We shift Lots of other things as well. Some companies shift the care of their company vehicles to another source, another group of people. My daughter, who's an attorney, um, doesn't care for her own children during the day. The ones that aren't in school are taken care of by someone else. She shifts that responsibility of work to them. We sometimes shift, or companies do, the back office operations for accounting to another firm. 
Or we shift, they do, the marketing of their product to a marketing agency. This is always a good thing. We, we, we call it outsourcing in their case, and there's nothing particularly wrong. In fact, it's seen as a, a good thing to do. But there are other things that we do. We shift our time and not just our work. For example, sometimes you may not be able to get up in time to come to church, and so you might want to listen to the podcast later. Or um, maybe uh, you couldn't make it to lecture at the college, so you um, read it online. We're shifting time. After the first service, a woman came up to me and said, you know, I do this all the time when I'm in traffic. I shift lanes. <laughs> and I told her, well, you know, what I do is when I'm in the grocery store, I'm always shifting lines. One word of advice, if you see me in line at the grocery store, don't get in the line with me because my line is always the slowest. <laughs> but we all shift things in time. In fact, uh, if we don't get somebody on the phone, we leave a voicemail, right? So they read it or listen to it later. We even shift our holidays. I couldn't tell you when George Washington's birthday is going to be next year. I'm surprised they haven't moved the holiday 4th of July to the 6th or 7th or something. We're shifting things all the time, whether it's our work or whether it's time. We sometimes shift our finances. Instead of paying cash for something, we put it on the credit card and we pay it later. In a kind of a reversal of that, when I go into Starbucks, I don't pay cash for it. I pay for it using earned previous credits, points. Or if I fly on the airplane, I use miles from previous journeys. So we're shifting Lots of things, even finances from time to time. Now, I suspect that all of this shifting is because many times we just don't like to wait. We shift things because we don't like to wait. But I'm here to say this morning that sometimes shifting can be a big problem. Now, some of you know that I like cars. There are a few others in the church that do too. We sometimes make Saturday morning runs over to Ojai to get a cup of coffee. And uh, in particular, I have a car that has what's called a manual transmission. How many of you can drive a stick shift? Raise your hand. Well, I'm impressed, actually. Mine has six speeds. So I have to say that shifting is a problem or getting to be a problem because I'm going into Los Angeles much more than I ever used to. And if you drive in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic, as I have for nine hours in L.A. over the past two days, shifting is definitely a problem. I'm shifting up, shifting down, shifting up, shifting down, bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic for hours on end. I have to tell you, my 70-year-old knee is getting really tired of shifting. So shifting can be a problem. The lesson I think that we can see in these verses that we're going to look at is that we shouldn't be shifting. We shouldn't be shifting the credit for the good things in our lives down to us. And we shouldn't be upshifting the blame for all the problems in our lives to God. We shouldn't be downshifting and we shouldn't be upshifting, but instead we should be waiting. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. 
O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Now this passage, I think, can be divided into three sections. The first is verse 12, which stands on its own. And then verses 13 to 15. And then verses 16 to 18. 16 to 18, warning us against downshifting. Verses 13 to 15, warning us about upshifting. And verse 12, reminding us that we need to wait. Now, without wanting to be shifty, I want to deal with them in reverse order today. First of all, verses 16 to 18. We should not downshift the credit for the good things in our lives from God to ourselves. We shouldn't take credit for these good things. A couple years ago, I learned about the dangers of downshifting. A member of the church whose name I will not mention uh, and I uh, were going to drive to Los Olivos to get a cup of coffee. And he took me in his very fast car. We were halfway up the San Marcos Pass, and I think some of you know that there are a few passing lanes. Actually, I think they're lanes for the slow cars to get over, but nobody ever does that. So in this case, my friend decided to use that short little passing lane to get around the car in front of him. And he gunned the engine, and we took off, and we were halfway up through, and he decided to shift. But he missed his shift. Instead of shifting up, he shifted down, and the engine went, and we lost our forward speed, and I thought I was going to die. Downshifting can be dangerous. But I think we do this. We all tend to do this. We take the credit for things. We downshift it from God to ourselves. We do it with our careers. If our career is going well, we've been promoted We've taken a pay increase. We're kind of feeling good. Wow, I guess all that training that I got, that degree I got, all that hard work that I'm putting in, I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm, I'm succeeding here. We take the credit for our careers. We downshift it from God to ourselves. Or uh, sometimes we do this if we happen to own property or a business. We say, well, I guess I must have a really good business sense. I'm a good business person. Oh, you know, we want to be humble about it, but we take credit. Sometimes parents do this, too. If our children are doing well, we say to ourselves, well, I guess I did a good job. I must have really built into them all the good virtues. And so we take the credit as parents for the success of our children. I think we all do this. We all tend to downshift the credit into our own lives, take it ourselves, and take it away from God. But verses 16 and 17 warn us, Do not be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above. It's from God. Now, it's interesting, the Greek here refers to a good gift and a perfect gift, and you may wonder, why does it say both? Well, the language suggests that what is, we're being told is that God gives us, initiates the giving of this gift, and then through our lives, he continues to perfect it. So this isn't like a single gift. It's what he's doing and the giving and the blessing that's going on continuously through our life. Verse 18, if you look at verse 18, tells us why it is that all the gifts from God are perfect. Of his own will, 
he brought us forth by the word of truth. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is not a result of our effort, these good things in our life. Nor, interestingly, is it a result of God's effort. This passage tells us that these gifts are of his will, by his word. So look first at will. His will, like our own will, arises from our nature. We don't choose anything that we don't want to. But God's nature is perfect. And so his will for us is perfect. And it says, goes on to say, and it is of his will, but by his word. What is our word? Our word is the expression of our nature. It's the expression of our will. And so if God's nature is perfect, his will is perfect. If his will is perfect, then the expression of that in his word will be perfect. And what is the expression of God's will? What is his word? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look at the life and the nature of Jesus Christ, we see why God's gifts for us are always good and perfect. So he concludes in verse 18, if we are willing to give God the credit for the good things in our life, then we will become what James calls the first fruits of God's creatures. Now that's a weird expression, first fruits. It doesn't mean much of anything to us. But it's used by Paul in the 8th chapter of Romans where he says it refers to what we will be like when we are regenerated after our resurrection in Christ. What's a regenerated person? What will we look like? Well, we will become precisely the person that we were designed to become. To use the automobile analogy, it would be like blueprinting the engine. When an engine is produced, there's always flaws in it. But if you take it apart and you put it back together, engineering and honing every piece so that it's precisely to the tolerances that it was designed to have, that engine will perform Radically better. This word, first fruit, suggests that we can become precisely the person God wanted us, that God designed us to become. Now, mind you, it's tempting to think, oh, well, then we're all going to be clones. We're all going to look alike. We're all going to be perfect. No. The promise is that we will become precisely the person we were designed to become, and each of us is special. Each of us is unique in God's eyes. As my friend, late friend, Dallas Willard used to say, we can become precisely the person that Christ would have become if Christ had had our life to lead. That is the promise. If we credit God, then we will become what our designer, the Heavenly Father, intended us for it to become. All right, so... I learned on my way to Los Olivos that we have to be careful about downshifting when the road is clear. It can hold us up. But if we turn to verses 13 to 15, we see that upshifting can also hold us back. Upshifting can also cause a problem. Upshifting the blame for the difficulties in our lives to God can cause as much of a problem as claiming the credit for things he has given us. Uh, a couple years ago when I first got my car, 
I was getting on the southbound 101 at Costco, and some of you know that entrance ramp. It has two lanes, and then the two become one before they get on the highway, right? There are a lot of these in Santa Barbara. I'm not quite sure why, but that's the way it is. So I get on, and I had my new, my new car, and there's somebody alongside of me. Well, I had a choice. I could either be nice and say, okay, you go first, and you go down on the... Or I could say, well, let's just see what it'll do. So I hit the gas, and I'm zooming along, and they're zooming along, and I'm zooming along. And I wasn't familiar with the sounds and the revs of the engine, but I thought, well, I think it's time to shift. So I upshifted, but I upshifted too soon. And as a result, I lost all of the torque, all of the revs, all of the power, and my car slowed down. Well, I lost. <laughs> upshifting when we're facing a challenge, can also cause problems in our lives. And this upshifting of blame to God, I think, is even more common than perhaps downshifting the credit. We tend to like to upshift blame. We tend to like to pass the buck. We tend to like to hold other people responsible for the difficulties in our life, don't we? Now, I've, I've just spent a week with six of my grandchildren feel like shooting myself. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but kids tend to point fingers at one another. Oh, he did it. No, she did it. No, he started it. No, I started No, never heard anybody say I started it. They love to point fingers. But you know, there are a lot of childish adults who point fingers at one another. Oh, it's her fault. Oh, it's his fault. We do this almost naturally, blaming others. Finger-pointing. Spouses blame one another. Politicians blame the citizens. The citizens blame the politicians. The media blames everybody. We blame the media. Finger-pointing and upshifting the blame to someone else is a common practice in our culture. Can you imagine if we ever watched a debate or a panel on TV where people are going back and forth and one of them suddenly sits back and says, Wow, I never actually thought of that. That's a good point. I think I made a mistake. Can you imagine? Sadly, I'm afraid we do the same thing to God. We blame God. We upshift to God the blame for many of the things in our lives. In verse 13, it says, Let no one say when tempted, I'm being tempted by God. But we do this, don't we? We say, Oh God, why did you let this happen? Well, God, why, why, did you, why did you let them do this to me? God, why, why, is, why is it that you are treating me so badly? We do this. But let's understand that when we say that we are being tempted by God, we really don't understand because to, to blame someone, they have to have given in to temptation. But a temptation is for something you don't have. You can't be tempted if you already have it. But as we've already seen, God's nature is perfect. God lacks nothing. So God can't be tempted. And if his will and his word are the outgrowth of that perfect nature so that he always wants the best for us, then he can't be tempting us. And so, as it says in verse 14, we are responsible. 
Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. But God's desire for us, as we've seen, is perfect. It is we who think we lack something. And when we think we lack something, then we want it. And we always want more than what we have. If we sit here and think about it, I imagine each of us can think of things that we want. Think of things that, that we would like to have more of. And there's a process that goes on described in verse 15. And this process parallels the process of God's giving us gifts. Remember, in the Greek, it starts, he initiates the giving, and that giving continues through our life until it is perfected. Here, there is a process whereby our desires, our, our sense that we lack something, the thing we're tempted by in our life, begins a process, just like the giving of gifts did. We think we lack something. This is our desire. And our desire becomes our will. And our will allows us to choose. And that choosing is sin. And the sin separates from us from God. And as the passage says, the separation from God is death. And so, we should not upshift the blame to God for the hardships in our lives. Now, this is easy to say and hard to do, especially in the situations where we think that the hardship that we're facing does not arise from our own desire or our own temptation, but it arises instead from circumstances that we don't control. My daughter is a graduate of Westmont in philosophy. She's an attorney. I was with her dropping off and picking up the kids this week, and I told her about this message, and she said, you know, Dad, with regard to Elise, Elise is my little granddaughter that was born with half a heart. Many of you have been praying for her. With regard to Elise, I do both of these things. When Elise is doing well, when she's gaining weight, when she's happy, she's not throwing up, I downshift the credit. I think, wow, I've got my lists of medicines. I, I check with the doctors. I follow the instructions. I do it all. And she is. She's pretty, shall we say, obsessive-compulsive. She says, I take the credit for it. And then when Elise is not doing well, or when we're in the hospital and she has to have a checkup, and they're poking at her, and she's crying, and she's looking up at me, even though she can't speak, and saying, Mommy, why are you letting them hurt me? She says, it's easy for me to upshift the blame to God. As we were talking about it, I said, Sweetheart, as a dad, and as a granddad, and this morning as a preacher, I have to say that the answer to that is very difficult. All I can say is that when you're in the hospital with Elise and she looks at you that way, your heart is broken, but you know that many of the things that are causing her pain are necessary for her ultimate health. And you wish you could change it, but you can't. And so I would suggest to you and to us this morning that when we face those kinds of hardships, we need to ask God to give us the faith to extend the motherly perspective that understands these circumstances to the infinite, all-loving perspective of our Heavenly Father, who knows better than we what we need, and in eternity will give us a crown of righteousness if we avoid the downshifting of credit and the upshifting of blame. 
For now we see through a glass darkly, but one day we'll see this more clearly. And so if we can't downshift the credit and we shouldn't upshift the blame, then what are we told to do? Well, in verse 12, we read, wait, just wait. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, this word steadfast in Greek is hupomeno. And that word occurs many places in the New Testament. In other places, it's translated as endure, be patient, persevere, abide, or in the very loose message translation, which I like, it says, stick to it. Stick to it. The word is used in several places in providing analogies that I think help us understand what this means to wait. First of all, in chapter 5 of James, which we'll get to in a few weeks, we hope, the analogy is with that of a farmer. Be patient, hupomeno, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. And then a few verses later, James talks about an analogy of this word wait to the life of Job. Now, most of you know about the life of Job, but when we, when you start to feel badly for yourself, imagine if you had been wealthy and king of the world and all of a sudden you lost all of your family, all of your possessions, and all of your health. Could you be patient? Behold, verse 11, chapter 5, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast, hupomeno. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Finally, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, draws an analogy using this word, and in fact using the word crown that appears here as well, to that of a runner. And some of you here are probably runners. He says there, I have fought a good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, hupomeno. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day, if we persist. In other words, if we wait, the promise is clear. But we're not good at waiting, are we? What is patience? When I lived in Africa... In 1987, 88, 89, on one occasion, I drove from the capital city about six hours south and then into the bush to visit the old Free Methodist Mission Station on the Lundi River. First time I had visited it was in 1970 when I was nearly trampled by a hippo, but that's another story for a different day. On this occasion, as I was driving in, out in the middle of nowhere with no buildings and no people, we saw a man squatting by the side of the road next to a tall post. We pulled over and we said to him, uh, can we help you? Is there anything wrong? He says, no, I'm just waiting for the bus. Suit, tie, squatting in the sun in the dust, just waiting for the bus. So naturally I said, well, when is it supposed to come? And he said, well, it was supposed to come yesterday. But I waited all day and when it didn't come, I walked home and I came back this morning to wait. That's why we say in Africa, patience is not a virtue. Patience is a survival skill. And that's in contrast to the month of June I spent in New York, 
where in the subways and at the bus stops and on my smartphone, I had minute-by-minute updates live of when the next subway or the next bus was going to arrive. Patience is not a modern virtue, especially in our culture, is it? We don't like to wait. What is patience? What does it require? Well, it requires that we submit to something. Typically, patience means submitting to time. It might mean submitting to someone else's point of view. It might mean submitting to someone else. And it is not a modern virtue because we don't like to delay our gratification. And more importantly, we don't like to submit. Instead of submitting, we shift. Instead of submitting, we shift. Which raises the question, if this is true, could the problem behind shifting be that we have a problem with authority? Do we have a problem with authority? Individually or as a culture? If so, then what would the solution be? Well, I think it's interesting that the solution, as James described it, goes back to the second word in the book that we talked about weeks ago. Remember in James 1.1, he introduces himself. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Pastor Colleen explained, the word servant here in Greek, doulos, isn't necessarily associated with the excesses of slavery and the abuses that that brings, but very often means the voluntary submission of a person to someone else. If we can learn to wait, to voluntarily submit to the Lordship of Christ, to avoid downshifting the credit for the good things in our life, to avoid upshifting the blame for the bad things in our life, then we are promised the crown of righteousness. What is this great reward? What is this crown? Well, crowns belong to kingdoms. It is the kingdom of God. It is eternal life. It is the salvation of our souls. It is to become precisely who God designed you and you and you and you to become. That is our reward. I think this is summarized well in a passage that was captured in the opening song of our service and that we will share again in a moment. Isaiah 40, verse 31. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will walk and not faint. Friends, let's learn not to downshift the credit, upshift the blame, but to wait upon the Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.